the next couple times that I teach um, or preach, whatever you call it, I'm going to be walking through the first church. Be walking through some of the pillars of the first church. What did the first church look like? If you go to our new members class, you get a brief understanding of it. Uh, we walk through it very quickly. But I'm really, over the next couple of times that I teach, I'm going to really be focused in on the book of Acts, chapter 2. And we're going to be mainly in verses 41 through 47 for the next few times that I'm teaching. And I want you to know that don't feel like, oh, it's a series, so if I'm not here, the next time David teaches, I miss something. They all stand alone, but then again, it's all part of the first church. So I want you to hear that today. And we're going to go to the Lord in prayer as we get started. Lord, first and foremost, I am so thankful that you are king. Satan is vanquished, and Jesus Christ is king. And so, Lord, we praise your holy name, and we know that according to the scripture, that when the breath of God is presented, that it will not come back void. And so, Lord, we stand on that promise this morning here at Luke 4.18 as we open up the breath of the living God. Lord, I pray this morning that the preaching and teaching is not in persuasive words of wisdom, but on the power of Christ and Christ alone, so that our faith would not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. Remove me out of the way and teach, O God, and speak, so that your name may be glorified. For it's in your name. Amen. All right, so in Acts chapter 2, or really the book of Acts, we see the historical understanding of the first church. Uh, we see that the church starts in Acts 2, and over the next uh, few times as I shared, I'll be preaching on this. I want you to know that the book of Ephesians gives us a lot of the doctrinal statements and understanding of the first church. But as you get into the book of Acts, it gives us that historical understanding, especially in Acts chapter 2. But to do this today, I feel like we've got to have just kind of a little bit of an overview. Let's like jump out of the airplane at 40,000 feet and let's, well, you wouldn't jump out at 40,000 feet. Maybe like 10,000 or 8,000. Yeah, you need an oxygen mask. That was not a good illustration. Um, so you jump out at 10,000 feet and you're parachuting down. Let's start from all the way back. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. You don't have to flip there. I'm going to go very quickly. But in Genesis chapter 1, we know that God created in Genesis chapter 3, we see the fall of man and sin enters the world. And from this point on, man is in need of a Savior. Creation is groaning for a Savior. We are in need of a Savior. All throughout the Old Testament, we see the story of Israel. And during this time, they're waiting on the Messiah while also prophesying of His coming. God dwelt with His people in the Holy of Holies. Many of you have studied that, you know about that, but only one day a year could one person, the high priest, go in to make atonement for all people. There was a religious sacrifice that was in place to atone their sins. And they would continually, day and night, have to go and have that sacrifice, as you see in the book of Hebrews. Then came Jesus, the long and awaited for Messiah. He was born of a virgin. He was lived a perfect life, and He died on the cross taking our sin and paying the price that we deserved. Taking the wrath of God upon Him, of which we deserved. In John 19, verse 30, it says, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, It 
is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but that statement right there is extremely powerful. Because I believe Jesus is saying two things here. Number one, that the sacrifice is finished. Him giving his life for us, the blood of the Lamb, that what we deserved was the wrath of God. What we deserved was, was being uh, basically placed in hell for eternity, but because of Jesus and the blood of the Lamb, He took our sins upon the cross, and that sacrifice was finished. But I also believe that in that moment, He was also saying that religion was finished. Religion was finished. You say, wait, David, I thought that you're a religious person. I wouldn't call myself a religious person. I put no name on me but the, but the name of Christ. I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. That's why I sign all my letters that way. That's why I, I tell people I'm a bondservant. But here's the thing. He said, it is finished. And I believe in that moment that religion was finished. Here's why. Because there was no need of a sacrifice anymore. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 10 Verses 11 through 12, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which could never take away sins. In verse 12, it says, but he having offered one sacrifice, who's he? Jesus on the cross, after offering one sacrifice for sin for all, sat down at the right hand of God. You know the story. Why did he sit down? Because he didn't have to continue doing a sacrifice. The sacrifice was over. Religious in that religion in that moment was broken. It was done. And that's the reason why in Matthew 27, 51, the veil is torn from top to bottom. Why? Because the Holy of Holies is no longer needed at this moment. Because in just a few days, what's going to take place is that Jesus, or the Holy Spirit, is going to make our heart the Holy of Holies. He's going to come dwell within us. And so you see that religion is broken in that moment. It's removed, the religious practices. This is what made the Pharisees so mad. It made the Sadducees, the scribes, so frustrated because they had ascended on the religious uh, platform and made it to the top. And they're like, wait, you're, you're telling me Jesus is going to come and tell me that all that I had worked so hard to gain is now over? You mean to tell me that, that, that I, I studied all this and I, I prepared all this and, and I've made it to the top? And you're going to say, I've got to humble myself and this guy's removing it all? And they hated him to the point of ultimately they took him to the cross. Now, they didn't take him to the cross Jesus allowed himself to go for our sins. But I want you to see that in that moment in Matthew 27, and behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. A powerful moment in Christianity is that the Holy of Holies is no longer needed. Why? Because Jesus is making relationship with us. And ultimately, in a few days, he's going to send somebody. In John 16, 7, Jesus says, He says, But I tell you the truth, that it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Who's the helper? The Holy Spirit. Can I just tell you, as I was studying for this message, you know, all my life as a little kid growing up, and I was always told that when you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of me. And you know, that, that's a pretty cool statement. And as a kid, you know, and I just... But I was studying for this message and it was like the Lord just gave me this new sense of understanding and awe. Like the Creator 
God of the universe loves you and I so much that not only did he go and send his son to the cross to bear the shame, to bear the punishment, to bear the pain that we deserved, but he also said, I love you so much, I'm going to make your heart my home. I'm going to come dwell within you. I mean, think about that for a second. Do we comprehend the idea that the creator, God of the universe, through the Holy Spirit, lives inside of us right this moment? I mean, the Holy Spirit's here. If you're a believer in Christ, you know Christ is your Lord and Savior, just lift your hand up. Look at the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is all throughout this building. That's why I tell people all the time, this is not, this is the church house. We're the church, the temple that God, the Holy Spirit dwells inside of. Like the Holy Spirit, Jesus, God, the Trinity, He lives within us. That's, a, that's like a mind-blowing statement. And maybe, just maybe, that will challenge you. That when you're beginning to, 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 to be tempted and you want to walk into that sin and you think, man... Like the creator God of the universe is with me. I don't need to go there. I don't need to do that. I don't need to do this. And when we do, we know the Holy Spirit's there. Why? Because of the conviction that comes forth in our lives. Jesus then spends a few days with them and then he ascends. Oh, let me see. I, I missed something here. Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day. That's a powerful, big moment here. And let me just tell you that that stone that was there wasn't rolled away because Jesus had to get out. Jesus, there ain't no stone on this earth that could hold Jesus in the tomb. It was rolled away so that we could see that it was empty. It was for us. He defeats death, hell, and the grave. And just a few days later, he ascends, and it says that the Holy Spirit is coming. And in Acts chapter 1, right before the start of the church, Jesus gives them the mission statement of the church. Do you know that? The mission statement of the first church is written right here in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, and in all Judea, Samaria, and even to the remote parts of the earth. Listen, Jesus, that's what the whole book of Acts is about, right there. You want to sum up the whole book of Acts, go to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. A lot of people want to focus on the miracles and the signs and wonders, and those are great, and we need to look at those. But the whole book of Acts is built on that verse right there that Jesus is saying, hey, Guess what's coming? The Holy Spirit. Y'all have no clue, but it's coming. And then, in that moment, you're going to receive power. Like dynamite power. Like explosive power. And the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against you. You're going to move forward throughout this city and all the way to the remote parts of the earth because of the Holy Spirit that comes and dwells inside your heart. And nothing will be able to stop you. You know how I know nothing was able to stop them? is because we're here today. We're sitting here today because the gates of hell could not prevail against the church. That's how powerful, man, I got like some Holy Ghost goosebumps this morning. That's how powerful the Holy Spirit, that's how powerful our God is. He's all powerful and he dwells within us. And so then Pentecost comes, Acts chapter 2. 
And as a believer, you know, we, we've got to understand the Holy Spirit then comes to dwell within. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 26 through 27. I love this. That this, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to the saints. What's the mystery? Here it is. To whom God will to make known what is the riches of his glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Woo! Christ in us, the hope of glory. 1 Corinthians 3.16 tells us that, that our bodies are a temple of God. It says, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? I don't know about you all, but I'm, I'm ready to leave. That's enough for me. The fact that I know that the Holy Spirit, Christ, dwells inside of me, like, I'm ready to go out. I'm ready to go tell the world. I'm ready to go let everybody know about the power of God that dwells in me. Who I am today is because of Christ in me, not because of anything I've done on my own. And that's what I shared two weeks ago. I told you, one of the last points that I had was, is that we've got to share with the world how we love them. We have to share with them how we're able to forgive them. We have to share with them how it's Jesus in us, the hope of glory. We can do Nothing. So through the power of the Holy Spirit, we see in Acts chapter 2, and I want you to go to verse 41. And it says this. Let me skip up to verse 37, actually. And I'm just going to read this. I didn't give this to them in the back. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. Remember, Peter gets up with the power of the Holy Spirit, and he gives what some people call the first sermon. I like to call it the movement of the Holy Spirit. And he says in verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And I love his response. This is what our response should be to the world. Our response should simply be in verse 38. It says this, Peter said to them, Repent. Repent. Turn. Return to Christ. Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In verse 41, we'll skip down. So then those who received His word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Woo! Guess what? The first church just began. He preached the gospel. The Holy Spirit moved in a mighty way, and 3,000 people came to know Christ. I want to start this morning by showing you two things about the first church that I just want you to hold on to. The first thing I want you to see is in verse 41, is that those who received the word, that they were the ones, it says, those who had received the word and were baptized, those who repented of their sins, those who believed in Christ. And then it goes on in verse 42, just look at that. They were continually devoting. Who is they? They are the ones who repented. They are the ones who accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. They are the ones who are the members of the church, the first church. Now I'm going to say something and some people in this world ain't going to like me, but listen, I'm not worried about it. I serve one person and that's Jesus Christ. The only way you can be a member of the church of God is to be a believer in Christ as your Lord and Savior and that you've repented of your sins. You can call that narrow-minded, that's fine. I'm just telling you what God said. Now, do we want 
non-believers to come and hear the message? Do we invite them to come? Absolutely, 100%. But you cannot be a member of the church unless you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Now let me just tell you something. Some churches today are saying, well listen, you know, we want everybody to be a member so that maybe they'll come to know Christ. Or we want to just, you know, they open up the doors and they're saying like, it's okay for a non-believer to be a member of the church. I don't care what membership you have. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you're not a member of His church and of His body. You can think that you're deceiving the great I Am and the holy God of the universe. You can say, well, listen, you know, I'm, I got a membership, God. You can hold that up and that card that you're holding up means nothing unless you know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. I will never compromise. Brother Fred will never compromise to that. Why? We stand according to the Word of God. You want to be a member of Christ's church? Then you must repent of your sins and fall before a holy, holy God and turn your life to Him. I do want you to hear. I love I love all people and I long for them to hear the gospel of Jesus. And I pray that non-believers will come and hear the gospel even here. But membership, as you see in the first church, were those who believed in Christ as their Lord and Savior. And you know what happens when the church is filled with believers? See, we've got a lot of churches that aren't filled with believers and you see a lot of craziness. Why? Because they don't have the, the, the understanding of the Word of God. They don't have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of them. But you know what happens when the church is filled with believers? The community starts to see the love of God. People start to grow together. And when somebody walks on this campus, guess what they see? They see the love of Christ. Why? We love because He first loved us. I want to show you this real quick 40 second video about some people who shared about their experience at Luke 4.18. The people here at Luke 4.18 Fellowship are genuine. They genuinely love and care about you and your family. From the first day we were here, we have been welcomed with open arms, loved on, prayed for. This is a wonderful church where people definitely love you and you see what God intended for the church to be as you come here. This is where I want to be because it's been such a blessing for me. The sense of love here, the sense of godliness here, the truth in the sermons, and the way it's presented, we felt welcome whenever we got here. That right there could not have taken place outside of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers when people walk onto our campus and to hear that. Some of the people in that video have been here since the very beginning and some have just joined over the last few months and years. But what they said in common and what you heard there was the love. The love that I felt here. The understanding like they were praying for us and, and they, they, they truly wanted to, to walk with us. And I pray that the community sees that when they step on this campus. So Acts chapter 2, verse 42, that was my intro. Here we go. Some of y'all think I'm kidding. <laughs> and I love this verse. We have to memorize this verse. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles, teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, 
and to prayer. Now, devoted. Devoted there, continually devoted, means to persist. To, to continue on. You know, we see in the scripture that those who practice such sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I've shared with you the word practice there means to continue. You continually do. Devote it. Continually devote it means that you continually do. Now, this is good stuff. You continually are devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, breaking of bread, and to prayer. But you know what? Being devoted is actually a sign, and I'll show you scripturally, that you're a believer in Christ. In the book of Hebrews, it tells us, all throughout the book of Hebrews, it shows us over and over and over that those who believe in Christ will endure. They will endure. They will endure. You see it all throughout the book of Hebrews. Now, I'm not saying that you're not going to have struggles and pains and situations that come up, absolutely. But I'm telling you, as I shared with you two weeks ago, somebody who's running from the faith, who is truly a believer in Christ, will always come back. Will always come back. And so we see here that they were devoted, that they endured through the end. In Acts chapter 2, 42, the first main thing I want to just, just dive in today is the very first one. What were they devoted to? The first thing is the apostles' teaching. And so the rest of the message today is all about the apostles' teaching. I believe that this is a pillar of the church. I believe that we must be devoted to the teaching of the Word of God. So the number one, the first point I have today is that they teach the word. Teach the word. In 1 Timothy, and I challenge you just to write this down and go home and read this, but in 1 Timothy chapter 4, 6 through 16, this is Paul talking to Timothy, and he's talking to this, uh, as, as telling him, writing this letter, and he's saying, hey, go preach the word, go teach the word. But I want you to see a couple of verses in here. In verse 6, it says, And pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have what been following go to verse 11 in verse 11 it says this prescribe and teach these things go down to verse 15 and 16 it says take pains with these things be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. And then I, I love verse 16. This is one that I like to live by as a pastor. And I believe we should all, as believers in Christ, live by this. Pay close attention to yourself that you're teaching. Um, there's that word. Perseveres, right? In these things. I freeze up when I see that word up here. Y'all notice that? In these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear it. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. So let me just start by saying this. What were the apostles teaching? The word of God. The absolute truth. Now, I've shared with you and walked through that, so we're not going to go into it majorly today, but I want you to know the foundation of the church, the cornerstone is Jesus Christ, the, the, the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. But we have to teach the absolute truth in the Word of God. We cannot bend or break on that. We cannot add into the Scriptures what we want to see. It's so interesting to me today to watch people literally say, I don't like what the Bible says about this and about that, so maybe that's not what God was saying. So I look at them and say, well, I guess that you're God since you get to tell me what the Bible says and doesn't say and what God really meant. 
Like, if you can figure out what God really meant and that you can tell God He really didn't mean that, then we have a God that's, that's not all-powerful, all-knowing. We have to say that this and trust and believe this is the absolute truth, the Word of God, and we must stand on this completely. I love that saying. God said it. Some people say God says it, I believe it, that settles it. But whether you believe it or not don't matter. God says it, that settles it. I believe it. I like to twist that back around where I do, I I believe this with all my heart. But God says it, that settles it. Us saying, well listen, that's not right or this isn't right. We're telling the living God that what he spoke is inaccurate. That's pretty arrogant. That's pretty prideful. All because we want to, to, to hold something of our flesh. And John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 100%. All of it. I heard a pastor preach not too long ago, and I loved what he said. He said, you know, there's some things in the scripture that are hard for me. I look at it, and I'm like, man, like, like that's very difficult. But in my humanity, I have to say, I'm human and you're God. And so I'm going to follow it even though it's difficult. But can I tell you that when we begin to walk in it, it doesn't become difficult after a little while. It's kind of like that sanctification process that's painful for a short time. But guess what happens? We begin to grow in it. It becomes part of who we are in our life. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. I love this. All Scripture is inspired by God. All, all scripture, not a piece of it here or a piece of it there. All scripture is inspired by God, every bit of it, 100%. All scripture is God-breathed or inspired by God and profitable for teaching. Like this, it's profitable to teach this. That's the reason why when somebody comes up to me and says, David, what a great sermon today, I say it was God. Anything that's good is of Him and anything that's bad is of me. I tell people that. Why? Because if I get up here and preach my own human understanding and my words, guess what? It's going to fall short. It may tickle your ears for a short time, but you're not going to gain anything from it. But when you allow the Holy Spirit to be spoken and we focus in on the Word of God, it will change the hearts of people. In Psalms 119, 160, it says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Listen, it says in the scripture that the word of God will last forever, everlasting to everlasting. So we must stand on the word of God, the apostles teaching. If Brother Fred or myself ever gets up here and teaches anything contrary to the word of God, I hope that you would come and first correct us, rebuke us. But if we ever got to a place where we're teaching things that were not of the word of God, we have a major problem. And I will commit to you that I will always study to count myself approved, to preach the whole word of of God. So, in teaching the word, does the church present the word accurately? Uh Uh-oh. I'm just going to be honest with you. There's some preachers out there that have personal agendas, that they begin to take a verse here and a verse there, and they begin to mold it all together, and they create a good message. Do we accurately handle the word of truth? 2 Timothy chapter 
Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Now you may be saying, David, I'm so glad you're the pastor and I'm not. But let me just tell you something. This is also speaking to you. Because we, as the body of Christ, are all a holy priesthood that God's called in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 to go be His witnesses. He was not saying to the pastors of Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Hey, the pastors of the church, I want you to be my witnesses. You're the ones that are going to study. You're going to present. And that's what's going to happen. No, He's calling the whole church to go and preach the Word. But we must share it accurately. And let me just be honest with you, there are churches out there that call themselves a church that are not accurately handling the Word of God, and it bothers me. It bothers me. In Matthew chapter 4, we see the the, the temptations of Jesus. In verse 3, it says this, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Why? He had been fasting for 40 days, 40 nights. And he answered him and he said, it is written. What does he do? He quotes the word of God. He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Deuteronomy, he quotes Deuteronomy. But in verse 5, Satan then says, then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And look at what Satan says, for it is written. He's quoting Psalms 91. Satan is now quoting Psalms 91 to the living God. You think he's quoting it accurately? Absolutely not. But he goes and he tempts Jesus by twisting and manipulating the Word of God. And I'm here to tell you, I will never stand for a manipulation version of the Gospel. Never. Because that manipulated version of the Gospel will never be enough. And there's going to, it says in the scripture, many will say, Lord, Lord, on that day, and he'll say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. And I believe people are going to stand up there and say, but my pastor told me if I do this, and my pastor told me if I was just good enough, and my pastor told me that if I was just give enough, and all these different things, and Jesus is going to say, hey, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I do not know you. Why? Because they believed a manipulated version. And here Satan is saying, Well, here, let me just quote Scripture back to you, Jesus. I can see him in his pride and arrogance. I know the word, too. Psalms 91 says, And if you'll command his angels concerning you on on their hands, they will bear you up, and you will not strike your foot against a stone. Verse 7, it says, And Jesus answered, On the other hand, it is written. So he comes back with the truth of the word of God, correctly spoken. And he says, You shall not put the Lord your God to a test. I want to challenge you today and say, do you go home from a message and look over the word of God of what's been spoken? Do you go home and chew on it? Especially when you're away, but even here. We must continually to continue to present the word of God and accurately speak it. If we're going to be like the first church, we must teach the word, the absolute truth. The word of the living God. Now the word of God also tells us, it says, don't forsake the assembly. 
And, and what if we can't make it? What if we can't be here? Now, I believe the reason that you don't want to forsake the assembly is because part of that is, is that the membership, to be part of the body, to spend time together, to, to serve and to love on each other. We'll talk about that in coming weeks. But some of us say, hey, like, I can't be there. Well, praise the Lord. And it says in Hebrews chapter 10, 25, it says, Not forsaking our own assembly together, as it is habit for some, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the days drawing near. You say, David, I can't be here. Did you know that this service right now is being live streamed? It's on Facebook Live. It's on YouTube TV. Um, You'll be able to see it on TV in a few days, and you can also pick up a CD. There are opportunities for you to, to still be a part and hear. I'm not telling you that you that's a substitute for it. It's only a supplement to it. And I want to show you how incredible another video of a testimony here of somebody that was watching on live stream. Live stream has been huge for us because we have a one-year-old and we have a four-year-old now. And with a one-year-old, we lose a lot of sleep. Sometimes can't wake up early enough to get everybody ready to come to church. Well, one day we were watching live stream and it was a sermon Brother Fred was preaching and it just hit me really hard. Everyone was up there praying, and I just wanted to run down in my car and fly down here and pray with everybody, too. So live stream is, has been great for us. He shared with me that story, and I thought it was so cool. He told me, he said, man, I was in my pajamas because the kids hadn't slept all night, and I couldn't get up, and I was like, man, you should have ran down here in your pajamas. Come on. Like, I got no shame, man. When the Lord is moving and, and you feel like you need to come on, like, just drive that car on down, let's go. So the first thing is, is that they teach, they teach the Word of God. The second thing I want you to see is that we must study the Word. Teach the Word. We must study the Word. Now let me just tell you this. Studying the Word of God is a discipline. Like you have to create that discipline. It's painful. It's difficult. Why? Because all the world, all the things of the, the, the world and the flesh is trying to pull away your time. I preached on time one time and I told you that if you have too much to do in a day, then you planned your day wrong because God's the author of giving us 24 hours in a day in some sense. We, he created all of this. And so if you're sitting there telling the living God who's supposed to give us what we're supposed to do for the day that he didn't make enough time for what he gave us, then we have a problem. If y'all didn't get that, I'll tell you later. But he's called us to study. I love Acts 19. Paul goes to Ephesus, and the church is being birthed in Ephesus. And it says this in verse 8, 9, and 10. And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Just previous to this, we saw uh, some come to faith. And then it says, but when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and he took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannius. For how long? This took place for two years. For two years they went and they, they, they studied the Word of God. I went to a place called the Cook Institute. I love Cook. And my schooling was through the Cook Institute. And I stepped in on day one and they said, here's your book for the whole year. This is what you're going to be studying. And every morning for four or five hours we poured over this book. And then in the afternoon, we learned practical ministry. But this was the book that we poured over. And you know what they taught me? They taught me how to study the Word. 
And so when I left the school of Canacook or the Canacook Institute graduating, I took this and I began to study it because they taught me how to study this, the Word of God, realizing that it must be by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we must truly study the Word of God. I just quoted it to you or just share with you 2 Timothy 2.15. I'll read it again. Be diligent to present yourself approved. Diligent to present yourself approved. Are we diligently studying the Word of God? Or do we just open it up and um, some people call it just, just uh, point and find and then you read a verse. I tell students all the time, I would rather you take one verse and chew on it all day long than to just check a box that you read it for five minutes. If you're doing it legalistically, you missed it. But are we studying the Word? Look at what Ezra said in chapter 7, verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord. He set his heart. He determined in his mind that he was going to study the Word of God. Now, we are walking through a spiritual warfare booklet or, or, or book, a uh, uh, notebook on Wednesday nights. If you're not studying the Word of God, you'll never be able to stand against the warfare coming your way. I just quoted, I just showed you Matthew chapter 4, Jesus and temptation. Every temptation, Jesus came back with the Word of God. He knew the Word of God. We must study the Word of God. Ezra said, for Ezra had set, made determination that he would study the law of the Lord and to practice it. And to teach his statutes and ordinance in Israel. He studied it so that he would practice it, live it, but also teach it. Just a minute ago I said, if you're a believer in Christ, raise your hand. And so many people across this room raise their hand. And so I am talking to the church, the body of Christ, believers in Jesus right now. If you have accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're a bondservant of the living God. We must set our minds to study the word so that we may practice it and teach it to the world. The third thing I want you to see in the last point today is this. First, we must teach the word. If we're going to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, we must teach the absolute Word of God. We must study the Word, but we must apply the Word. We must apply the Word. James chapter 1, many of you, this is the verse that you probably just popped in your head. Prove yourself doers of the Word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. He's saying... You got to not only hear the word, but you got to place it into your life. Some people believe the deception that if I just come to church on Sunday morning, I'm good to go. Like, I'm good to go. And they're sitting here idle, not focusing in on what God is speaking. And let me just tell you something. I spend hours upon hours upon hours to make sure that whatever is going on in that 30 minutes is exactly what God wants the people of God to hear. And here he's saying, you can't just come and just sit and just hear the word. You have to apply it and put it into your life. The last verse in verse, verse 25. I love this. In verse 25 it says, But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a, for, a forgetful hearer, but an effectual, uh, effectual doer, the man will be blessed in what he does. Some people say, I went to church, so I'm going to be blessed. 
But it says in the scripture that when you are a doer, that you apply what God is speaking to you, that you're blessed. Look at John 13, 17. If you know these things, you are blessed. Let's read it together. If you do them. Let's say it again. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. It doesn't say, hey, you're blessed, which I think it is a blessing to come to church, to meet with the body. But when we sit here and hear the word of God go forth, but we don't place it into our lives, we've missed it. We've missed it. In the book of Joshua, chapter 1, many of y'all know this, this scripture, be strong and courageous, but go to verse 8. In verse 8, it says this, The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day, or, day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to what all that is written in it. Wow! And he says that you'll be prosperous and your way will be success. Why? Because you're applying what the Word of God says into your life. So we got to teach the Word, we got to study the Word, but we got to apply the Word. In Ezra 7.10, what I just read to you, what did he say at the end? We practice it. I set my mind to, to study. He says, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it, to apply it to his life, to live it out. Why? So that people will see that in his life and so that he can teach it and share it with others. Let me share with you this quote by the Puritan minister Thomas Watson. He said, take every word as spoken to yourself. When the word thunders against sin, think God means my sin. When it presses a, a duty, think God intends me in this. Many put off scripture from themselves as if it only concerned those who lived in the time when it was written. But if you intend to profit by the word, bring it home to yourself. And then he said this, I love this. A medicine does no good unless it's applied. It's like going to the drugstore and having an ache and you buy a cream for that ache. Not that... And when you place that here and not to use it, you're saying, well, I got this ache and there is the helper. Day goes by, I'm still aching. Because you didn't apply it. You didn't place it within you. Now I have to explain real quickly and I will close in just a, a short minute. But to apply the word correctly, we must see how it was written and how it was intended in the scripture. If we don't do this and we just looked at it just straightforward, then if you go to the Old Testament at the very beginning, you'll look at it and you'll talk about Abraham and God calls him to move to the promised land. And you would say, okay, I'm getting and packing my bags and we're going to Israel. And I'm okay with that. But what we see is not God saying, okay, like, just like I called Abraham, you got to go to Israel. He may be, but what we have to understand is, what was God speaking to Abraham? He was telling him to trust him and to go wherever he called, no matter what. And that's what he's calling us to do. We have to apply that into our lives. I love what Donald Whitney said about this. And you got to hear this. I may have to say this twice just so you can pick it up. The words of Scripture must be understood to be applied. But until we apply them, we don't really understand them. Let me say that again. 
The words of Scripture must be understood to be applied. But until we apply them, we don't really understand them. For you to say that you understand the Word of God, but yet not apply them to your life, you've missed the whole point. You've missed it all. And so let me just share this with you as we close. I believe as I begin to teach on the first church, I want and I pray we are. Most of what you're hearing, you're going to see is that that's what we are doing at Luke 4.18. But I want to make a commitment to you. And here's my commitment. That we as a pastoral staff of Luke 4.18 will commit to studying the Word of God. To teaching the Word of God and only the Word of God. And applying it to our lives. But I want to ask you today. Will you also as the body of believers. Will you commit. Will you commit as well. To say Acts 2.42. They they continually devoted themselves to the apostle teaching. Will you commit. To come be under teaching of the word. To go and study the word. And to apply it into your life. You know what happens in Acts chapter 2? And on, and we'll read this on, but, but what happens? The Holy Spirit tarts, starts to take a hold. And mighty things begins to break forth all throughout the world. Will you commit to that today? Number one, to teach the word, to study the word, and to apply it to our lives. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.